Hi, everyone, and welcome to the sixth session of There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle Earth. I am Alistair Stevens, and if I look just a little more harried than normal, that is because I have slayed technical dragons in the setting up of the seminar this evening. We had some technical difficulties. We are starting a few minutes late, which has given the wonderful folks here in the YouTube chat the opportunity to discuss my often given, never kept promise not to go long on these seminars. I have to tell you right up front, this is going to be a shorter seminar tonight. I don't know how long it's going to run, so I am making no promise that can be held accountable later, but I don't think we're going to be here for the usual duration of a There and Back Again seminar. This, I am aware, is in the mode of a rash promise, but I've already released, well, I guess, including There and Back Again, I will have released five hours worth of podcast content today. Much That seems like it may just be a little too much. Hopefully, everything is working Good. You can hear me. I'm taking a little time to get into tonight's session because of these technical difficulties. I really don't want to uh, have to restart. But hey, it's working out. The reason that it's going to be a little shorter this week is simply that this is a turning point in Bilbo's adventure more than it is an event of substance, more than these are, I suppose, events of substance. There is a beating heart to tonight's reading, to chapter six of The Hobbit, Out of the Frying Pan and Into the Fire, but it is less pressing and less urgent, ultimately, than some of the previous events that we've seen. Things have been a little helter-skelter over the course of the last few weeks. This is not by any means a respite. This is not a pause in the action. In fact, next week's reading will be the respite. Next week's reading will be the pause in the action. And of course, we will have a ton to discuss. But this is, well, if not the beginning of the end, then at the very least, the end of the beginning. This is the end of the first act of our story. And we're going to talk about what that means for Bilbo. We're going to talk about what that means geographically. And we're going to talk about what that means thematically as we move through tonight's reading. And of course, drink. We're going to talk about catastrophe, you guys, because we are going to get possibly the greatest example of compounded catastrophe in the entire book. There are some events later which will have more impact. There are some events later which will be both personally to Bilbo and in the grand scheme of things more significant. But arguably, we are never going to see a sequence of events that folds so neatly in on itself and builds to a beautifully catastrophic climax. I'm talking, of course about the Eagles. We will get to all of that first. Okay, good. Everything is working. First, a quick recap. Uh, as ever, you can ask questions and make comments in the YouTube chat window, which is running right here next to the video. As of this moment, we have 67 people watching live, which is a fantastic number. Guys, welcome. I'm glad you're all here. I see Catherine and I see Chesney and Katie and Sean and Jackie is there and Becca and Robert. You guys are fantastic. Thank you so, so much for uh, for hanging out with me this evening to talk about The Hobbit. I will also be keeping an eye on Twitter using the hashtag backagain, and of course on the Discord chat room for which I failed to make space on my desktop right now. So I'm clicking back and forth in this arcane arrangement of windows that I have here in my, in my uh, studio. In the arcane arrangement of windows, I failed to make space for Discord, so I'm clicking back. And to find there on the Discord chat room, Bridgebury saying, oh my God, I just got a second monitor at work and it is amazing. I don't know how I could do this without a second monitor. No kidding, I'm thinking about adding a third. I know that's absurd. I know what that makes me, but I'm still thinking about doing it nonetheless. I have two monitors set up here, one with all the information that I need, one with all of your brilliant feedback and everything else that is happening. And it still doesn't feel quite enough. Though, of course, if I get another monitor, 
I'm just going to add more ways for you guys to interact with me during these live sessions, which means more conversations to keep up with. Self-care, not perhaps my greatest strength. So you can ask questions live during the session in the YouTube chat, on Twitter, on Discord, or you can ask questions in all of those places. Well, I guess save the YouTube chat. You can ask questions there after everything is over. You can leave comments on the YouTube video, but if you want to get in touch with me after the live session, if you are watching this in the days and weeks and months hence, then you can reach me on Twitter using the hashtag back again. I will certainly see that. If you want to make absolutely doubly sure that I will see it. You can tag me in that tweet. I'm at paperbullets on Twitter. You can find me over on the Storywonk forum at forum.storywonk.com, or you can reach me directly via email, alistair at storywonk.com. That is A-L-A-S-T-A-I-R. Before we get into the reading, before we get into our discussion even of the work of the professor, a couple of quick scheduling announcements. As some of you have known, I'm sure, Storywonk is in something of uh, a state of flux, has been in a state of flux since the beginning of the year, and there have needed to be some scheduling adjustments. None of this is going to touch there and back again. We're going to continue exactly as planned. But I had talked a little about the third season of Dear Mr. Potter, in which I was going to look at the Prisoner of Azkaban. That has had to be moved around a little. Um, it is now one of two milestone goals that I have set up on the Storywonk Patreon page at patreon.com slash Storywonk. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Storywonk. You can head on over there. Patreon is a service that allows you to pledge anything from a dollar a month to... I don't actually know what the upper limit is on Patreon. Hey, let's find out together. From a dollar a month to question mark to the internet content creators that you love the most, the, the people that you want to support, the people whose work you enjoy so much that you want to make sure that they continue producing that work. So you can pledge your support to StoryWonk, and that helps me defray the technical costs of running StoryWonk, which are perhaps more significant than you might imagine. It also helps pay me for my time so that I can take more time to do this. If everyone who was listening to this seminar tonight pledged a dollar a month over on patreon.com slash storywonk, I would be able to radically increase the amount of work that I do here at Storywonk and the kind of work and the depth of work that I do here at Storywonk. So your support is always, always appreciated. I will continue to put these shows out for free because... I know that there are people out there who can't afford a dollar a month. I know that there are people out there for whom that is too big a commitment right now. And I think that the, the community that surrounds these conversations is so important, is so vital, is so smart and rich and diverse that it should be fostered. It should be encouraged. And nothing is going to go behind a paywall. But if you want to help me do more, patreon.com slash storywonk. And that's not all, because if you head over to patreon.com slash and you pledge your support, then you get access to all kinds of exclusive content, including the current spring seminar poll. I have opened up the voting for the next seminar book. I'm going to run a seminar probably through the back half of March into April and arguably May, depending on which book wins out. I have opened the voting for that. I, I, I curated a little shortlist of, I think, seven books. You can head on over to the Patreon page. And uh, if you support me on Patreon, you can cast your vote and see what wins. Let me actually call this up right now. Here we have a little uh, improvised exploration and research here live on the podcast so that I can see who is currently winning right now. <laughs> okay, let's do the top three. Oh, well, I guess. Okay. In joint third place right now, we have The Book Thief by Marcus Zuzak and The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Those are currently tied. In second place, we have The Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger, a work of subtle 
and complex and genuinely heartbreaking genius. That is a magnificent book, though. Of course, all these books are magnificent books. In first place right now, we have American Gods by Neil Gaiman, which I cannot wait to discuss, though only a fraction of the votes, 300 votes have been cast so far. That is around a quarter of all the people who support me on Patreon. And if you start supporting me on Patreon tonight, then you get to go cast your vote too. So if you really want me to discuss the name of the wind, it is not too late. Head on over to patreon.com slash storywonk. That seminar session, as I said, will begin probably in the middle of March, depending on which book wins. It'll run weekly, probably Monday nights. I'm still juggling that. That isn't in any way fixed. And it may end up that it has to run in the afternoon Eastern time to be more accessible to European listeners and to those of you around the world. We'll get to all of that scheduling in due course. A um, lot of excitement here about uh, about American Gods, yes. And Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is on, the, uh, is on the short list too, though the support for that hasn't been as powerful as I expected it to be. Yes, good. Plan is that we're going to run that spring seminar session, and then I'm going to get to hopefully Harry Potter over the summer. We'll see how it all shakes out. So that's the scheduling announcements, which has taken up a little more time than I uh, than I expected it would. So with that in mind, we should perhaps get into our reading this week, in which Bilbo escapes the Misty Mountains, is reunited with the dwarves and with Gandalf, has a crucial reintroduction, then takes to the trees as he is attacked by wargs and goblins. Oh my. But first, we're going to talk a little about theme and we're going to talk a little about geography and we are going to do so with the assistance of this fragment of cartography right here. This is, as I'm sure you will recognize, a Lord of the Rings era map of Middle-earth. On the left-hand side there, you can see the Shire, you can see Hobbiton and Bywater and Bree and Buckland, in the center of the map, almost exactly the center of the map, in fact, you can see Rivendell there in the, the fork between those two rivers, right in the shade of the Misty Mountains, which run down the center of the map. And then all the way on the right-hand side, you can see Esgaroth and Erebor, Erebor, the Lonely Mountain. That is our destination. And I wanted to draw your attention to this fragment of map, because what this describes, what this articulates rather beautifully, and as I say, I, sh I should qualify this. This is not a Hobbit-era map. It is perhaps a little difficult, reading The Hobbit, to account for the very long journey from the Shire to Rivendell. We don't really talk about that stage of the journey in any detail. It is generic traveling montage. Obviously, when we get to the Fellowship of the Ring, we're going to explore that route very, very carefully. We're going to get a very strong sense of that route. We don't really get that in The Hobbit. But, because this is the work of the professor, all the cartography holds up. There's nothing inconsistent here. So when we look at this map and we see the path that Bilbo takes from Hobbiton on the left through Rivendell in the center, under the Misty Mountains and beyond all the way to Erebor, I guess, spoilers, you guys, he's going to make it to the Lonely Mountain at the end of the book. When we look at that, we see what is a very balanced adventure. It is cleaved right down the middle by the Misty Mountains, by this jagged array of peaks. But the Misty Mountains create much more than a geographical impediment. This is, this is a threshold. This is a profound and powerful threshold. And it is a threshold not simply between the world before and the world after. It isn't just coincidence that it's in the middle of the map. 
it represents something far more powerful, far more rich than that. The Misty Mountains mark the dividing line between the West and the Wild. We're really going to talk about the Wild next week as we move into what is, I suppose, our first our first complete encounter with the wild. We're still in this chapter dealing with the goblins and we're dealing with the wargs who are technically wild, but are still somewhat associated with the goblins. And we're dealing with the eagles, but the, the drama, the conflict here is still kicked off by the goblins. So there are elements of the wild that we will meet in this chapter, but really our adventure in the wild begins next week. But I wanted to talk about this division and I wanted to talk about how important it is a lot of times when you'll hear pop culture critics talking about Tolkien, and this was particularly true when the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out, and then of course when the Hobbit movies were coming out too, when Tolkien's work was hmm, perhaps in receipt of, of a larger than usual spotlight, you would hear critics all the time talking about Tolkien's positions. You would hear them saying things like, well, of course, Tolkien wasn't really a man of faith. And of course, the Lord of the Rings is just an allegory for the First World War. And of course, Tolkien hated civilization and believed in this state of, of natural savagery. And it should surprise none of you, I'm sure, that none of those things that I just said are in any way true whatsoever. There is an ongoing and, and somewhat sticky idea that Tolkien was in some way against civilization, which is abundantly untrue. Just look at the Shire. Look at the idyll that he created. It is perfectly civilized. It is almost defined by its civility. What Tolkien was suspicious of, what Tolkien fought against and, and rejected, was the concept of industrialization. He didn't believe in the dehumanization of people, of work. There was nothing wrong with getting one's hands dirty. There was nothing wrong with personal connection. There is something wrong with abstracting labor and encasing it in great factories, in, in great red brick factories in the north of England, where, of course, Tolkien had lived and traveled as a young man. Industrialization is impersonal. We saw this, of course, when we were talking about the goblins and the difference between the goblins and the dwarves. And I had a few emails on this topic as I was discussing the difference between the dwarves and the goblins. And I mentioned that the dwarves seem to be creating, even when they are creating arms and armor, they are creating objects of beauty. They are creating objects that have an innate value as well as a functional value. That is not true of the goblins. The goblins do not create anything of innate value, only functional value. But one of the other differences is that the dwarves are artisans. The dwarves are craftsmen. And the goblins are not. We are led to believe that the goblins create proto-industrial, pseudo-industrial mechanisms by which they can generate their weapons and armor, by which they can generate these horrifying weapons of war that the narrator attributes to them. The dehumanization, the evils of dehumanization, is one of the most pervasive and persuasive themes within all the work of Tolkien. And I mention this because I don't want for a moment to see the division between the West and the wild as a division between corruption and, and a natural state of virtue. That absolutely and resolutely is not the case. The Shire is and will remain the most virtuous place in Middle-earth. It is the simplest. It is the quietest. You will note that the bad guy in the Shire, to the degree that there is a bad guy in the Shire, at least at the beginning of the story, 
is the mill owner because the mill is as close to industrialization. It is as close to the, the conservation of power as the Shire has thus far got. That actually is true to kind of early Victorian life, even in England, and I guess even earlier than that, but, but to that pre-industrial life in England. The mill owner had a power that exceeded his role in the community, and that is always a thing of which we should be suspicious. Because, of course, power corrupts, and industrialization lends power to the previously powerless, but it also enfolds that power into fewer and fewer hands. If you are a mill owner, then you have an undue amount of power. If you own a factory, if you own, heaven help us, a factory that creates munitions and weapons of war, then how much undue power do you really hold? So, token suspicion of industrialization is evident in the pages of The Hobbit with the goblins, and of course we will get a much more a much more eloquent and persuasive argument against industrialization through The Lord of the Rings. There are a few different perspectives on that question. So there is nothing within this discussion that speaks to an innate criticism of civility or civilization from the professor. He was a fan of civility, as, as we all should be. But what distinguishes, <clears throat> excuse me, Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Robert says power attracts the corruptible. And he also says, I always figured the last homely house was on the border of the wild. That may well be true. We're going to talk a little about that because this is perhaps more of a thematic, uh, thematic distinction than it is a, um, hmm, than it is a geographical distinction. I think that, that the, the transition between the West and the wild occurs between Rivendell and the back door of, of Goblin Town, effectively, that in that extended space, or I guess you could argue, argue the cave where Bilbo and the others are taken, because we certainly see them passage into, into not just, you know, the literal storm, but of course the metaphorical storm. They are in a liminal space throughout that entire experience. So I would argue that, yes, the first step that you take to leave Rivendell heading east is the first step into that liminal state. And then for Bilbo in particular, emerging into, into the setting sun, the setting sun setting behind the mountains, we'll discuss it in a moment, is that that complete experience is transitory for everyone, but of course, doubly, triply, quadruply so for Bilbo. This is the most powerful transition that we can probably imagine for Bilbo. This is one of the major turning points in his entire career. So we will definitely look at that, yes. Um, Rebel Captain Cat B says, love dehumanization is the reason for industrialization being evil. The loss of humanity defines a fall, not progress. Beautifully put. Absolutely right. It is far too easy to look at Tolkien's position, his critical position on industrialization and to, to consider him therefore somewhat out of touch or simply old-fashioned or, or privileged, perhaps. Certainly the Industrial Revolution created a lot of employment. You know, it wasn't necessarily good employment, but there was a lot of it. But no, Tolkien wasn't concerned just with these factories belching smoke. He wasn't just concerned with, with the living standards of the people who were employed at those factories or with this bucolic ideal of the English countryside. He was concerned very much and very specifically with dehumanization. When we start to treat the people around us as tools, we are on the path to evil. That is going to be stated eloquently and explicitly as we move through The Lord of the Rings, and even arguably before we get to the end of The Hobbit too. So all of that is to discuss 
the West. All of that is to, to look at the West. Yes. And Robert's saying here to juxtapose Rivendell and Goblin Town, the gate into and then the gate out of. Yes, I think there's something to that. That's interesting, though, because I haven't really considered in what ways Rivendell and Goblin Town are, are contrasted, specifically contrasted. There's a thesis paper in that, Robert, and I hope that you're the one to write it. Um, yes. But certainly somewhere between these two things. And of course, the dividing line is going to be different for everyone. Certainly, Frodo is going to have a very different experience as he crosses the Misty Mountains, as he travels from the West into the wild. Um, and in fact, we might argue that Frodo's turning point, Frodo's real turning point, doesn't even come as he is crossing the mountains, but happens instead in the shadow of the mountains. Of course, we'll get to that as we discuss the Fellowship of the Ring. So we have the West on the one side, this land of civilization, this land that is peopled. And we have to look at the conflicts that Bilbo endured even as he was moving through the wild. He begins with this unexpected party. He dashes off down the road to the Green Dragon Inn at Bywater. He carries himself along with the dwarves as they head east. But the worst thing that happens to them and the trolls are a fairly civilized threat. They talk, they communicate, they could perhaps be reasoned with. They can absolutely be manipulated and deceived and duped. And then we arrive at Rivendell. Bilbo's greatest threat, apart from the trolls, in the entire first leg of his journey is discomfort, really. Now we have transitioned. Now we are looking forward into the wild. And we have to be very careful not to, just as we have to be careful not to attach any simplistic significance to civilization on the west side of the mountains, we can't attribute any simplistic, any simplistic interpretation, I suppose, to the varied and, and manifest virtues and vices of the wild. The wild is not a single thing, and it is not a simple thing. It is not good or evil. And we're going to continue to look at that through the next few chapters, but certainly in tonight's chapter as we look at the wargs and the eagles. Let me see here. Um, oh, yes, Esmeralda, Esmeralda Salt. Hello, Rachel cries out. Ants, elves, and Eriador is a great dive into Tolkien's views on industrialization and environmentalism. Yes, good. Good. Victoria says, Tolkien's dislike of industrialization always sat a little uncomfortably, but put it as dehumanization, and I agree completely. Yes. I think that is the, that is the part of Tolkien's, hmm. I was going to say philosophy, but I hesitate almost to call it philosophy because I don't think that he would have considered it an intellectual conclusion as much as something which is obviously and manifestly correct. I think it is, it is much more personal, innate, emotional, and, and obviously connected with his faith for Tolkien. But yes, certainly when we understand that missing piece, his perspective on all of this starts to make a lot more sense. And absolutely, we will talk about this when we get to Isengard. Yes. Good. Um, excellent. All right. Let's... Uh, Let's actually take a look at the beginning of our reading tonight, at the beginning of chapter six, and this first brief excerpt here, where Bilbo emerges from the Misty <coughs> excuse me, Bilbo emerges from the Misty Mountains. Bilbo had escaped the goblins, but he did not know where he was. He had lost hood, cloak, food, pony, his buttons, and his friends. He wandered on and on till the sun began to sink westwards, 
behind the mountains. Their shadows fell across Bilbo's path that he looked back. Then he looked forward and could see before him only ridges and slopes falling toward lowlands and plains glimpsed occasionally between the trees. Good heavens, he exclaimed. I seem to have got right to the other side of the Misty Mountains, right to the edge of the land beyond. Where and oh, where can Gandalf and the dwarves have got to? I only hope to goodness they are not still back there in the power of the goblins. He still wandered on, out of the little high valley, over its edge and down the slopes beyond, but all the while a very uncomfortable thought was growing inside him. He wondered whether he ought now, whether he ought not, excuse me, now he had the magic ring, to go back into the horrible, horrible tunnels and look for his friends. He had just made up his mind that it was his duty, that he must turn back, and very miserable he felt about it, when he heard voices. So, firstly, we must recognize here that somehow... Good heavens, I seem to have got right to the other side of the Misty Mountains, right to the edge of the land beyond. We're going to talk about this in just a few minutes' time, but that's kind of lucky, isn't it? Kind of conspicuously lucky, you might say, that he managed to bypass the entirety of the Misty Mountains and emerged here almost exactly where he intended to. A little further north, it's true, as Gandalf will point out in just a few pages' time, but nonetheless, he is here. But what really matters and what really marks this transition here is that third paragraph, Bilbo's instinct to return into the goblin tunnels and rescue his friends. This is, this is the proof that what Bilbo endured beneath the Misty Mountains, the challenges that he faced, the riddle game and facing down Gollum and then facing down the goblin guards and losing his brass buttons, that these things were not insignificant, that these things were not inessential to his arc. Bilbo has been transformed. It is almost impossible, I think, to look all the way back to the beginning and see the Baggins-ish Bilbo making this decision. Certainly he has been inspired to take rash action by his relationship with the dwarves. Remember, when he was dealing with the trolls, the reason that he went to go and, and pick the pocket of William the Troll was that he didn't want to return to the dwarves empty-handed. That's somewhat significant. He wants to be thought of well. He wants to be thought of as a part of the team, perhaps, maybe less that than simply an accomplished adventurer himself. He wants there to be some measure of respect. This goes all the way to the first chapter, of course, and the... Uh, the ill-timed and poorly judged remark about Bilbo looking more like a grocer than a burglar. In this instance, though, there's no one to judge him. No one would question his desire, his, his decision to simply flee, his desire to simply run off into the wild or to put on his magic ring and try to retrace his steps back through Goblin Town and out the other side. And can move invisibly. What would the harm be? He's not necessarily indebted to these dwarves. But now that he has the ring and his capability has increased, so his desire to prove that capability has increased. Now he's thinking about going back in. And we have to be careful, too, never to collapse Bilbo's identity into either Took or Baggins. He can make the somewhat Tookish decision to go back and rescue his friends, the heroic, adventuresome decision to go back and rescue his friends, but he's going to be miserable about it. He's going to regret it even as he's doing it because the Baggins-ish side knows what a foolish errand this is. Bilbo is still complex and still caught between those two worlds. 
Yeah. And we're getting a lot of discussion here in the YouTube chat about, uh, about his relationship with the dwarves. Yes. And we're about to face that exactly. Right. Um, and Benjamin says, I like how this part is immediately juxtaposed with the dwarves all choosing not to go back for him. Yes, because the dwarves were not changed by their experience under the Misty Mountains. Yes. Kate says he signed the contract with the dwarves. He is honor bound to find them. And I'm not sure that that's true. He has been hired as a burglar. He is not there to protect and rescue the party. There's no specific language in his contract that would compel him to return to goblin tunnels in order to rescue his friends, the dwarves. And the fact that they are referred to as his friends, I think, is also significant. They're not the dwarves. They are his party now, to some degree. And we'll see that increase, certainly through the second act of the book. The reason that I wanted to highlight this, as I say, is that it marks very clearly Bilbo's first major transition. It doesn't really matter what the turning point is, and I'm not sure that there is a single turning point. It can be the drawing of the sword. It can be the facing of Gollum, of Gollum, excuse me. It can be the desire to escape from Gollum without killing him. It can be charging the door and the guards and losing his buttons. It could, if you wanted to draw this case, simply be the losing of the buttons. We talked last time about the, the physical embodiment of his baggins nature being pulled, being torn from his clothing and scattered across the doorstep as the goblins chase after him. If you wanted to argue that that thematically is the moment that Bilbo, that Bilbo transforms into this version of himself, the Act 2 version of himself, then I would support that. I think there's something to that idea, absolutely. So Bilbo decides that he's going to return, but before he can, he hears voices. He overhears the dwarves talking, and they are somewhat less than impressed with him. They certainly don't want to go back beneath the mountain to recover him. So Bilbo decides to play a little prank. He puts on the ring, sneaks into their camp, into their number among the dwarves themselves, and then removes the ring, and we get this brief exchange here. Bless me how they jumped. Then they shouted with surprise and delight. Gandalf was as astonished as any of them, but probably more pleased than all the others. He called to Balin and told him what he thought of a lookout man who let people walk right into them like that without warning. It is a fact that Bilbo's reputation went up a very great deal with the dwarves after this. That he was really a first-class burglar, in spite of Gandalf's words, they doubted no longer. Balin was the most puzzled of all, but everyone said it was a very clever bit of work. Indeed, Bilbo was so pleased with their praise that he just chuckled inside and said nothing whatever about the ring. And when they asked him how he did it, he said, Oh, just crept along, you know, very carefully and quietly. Oh, it's the first time that even a mouse has crept along carefully and quietly under my very nose and not been spotted, said Balin, and I take off my hood to you, which he did. Balin, at your service, said he. Your servant, Mr. Baggins, said Bilbo. This is one of my very favorite exchanges in the entire book. Not just because Bilbo plays this trick, not just because we get Gandalf immediately slapping Balin down, not just because we have, from the perspective of the Lord of the Rings, our first very terribly subtle suggestion that the ring is exerting some malign influence on Bilbo, and we can talk about that in, in just a little while, but primarily because of this exchange at the end. Balin is so impressed by Bilbo that he does something very significant. 
which is effectively a formal reintroduction. Whereas their initial introductions back at, at Bilbo's home had been, well, somewhat less than, than formally courteous, I suppose. We'd had certainly the, the observation of courtesy, but we hadn't had the substance of courtesy. Now there is to me no suggestion that Balin isn't completely sincere. This is the recognition now of, well, a peer, if not entirely an equal. This is the first moment that Bilbo begins to earn acceptance from the dwarves. This is the first moment, and, and we'll continue to track this. This, in a very real sense, by the way, is Bilbo's arc through the second act of this book. This is why I'm putting such emphasis on it. Bilbo is going to find himself ultimately in a leadership position, and ultimately, he will be the rescuer, the savior of the dwarves. He's not there yet, but by acknowledging his desire to return to the Goblin Tunnels, and then by having Balin make this this formal overture to Bilbo, and of course, to have Bilbo reciprocate in kind. This is the beginning of a stronger and more personal relationship. And we must note, of course, that basically the first thing that Bilbo does here on the eastern side of the Misty Mountains, here on the very fringes of the wild, the very first thing he does is to offer an act, a gesture of civility. Bilbo is carrying civilization with him. The dwarves, too, though their civilization is a little different, and Gandalf, too, though his a little different still. But Bilbo here is representative of the Shire in a place where the circumstance and civility of the Shire has never yet been felt. This, for me, is an enormously powerful moment. It's enormously symbolic. It's enormously heartwarming. Certainly, it's an incredibly likable moment. I just adore it. And it has that undercurrent of, hmm, an undercurrent of something darker, something just a little, a little bleak, a little grim for those of us who have read ahead to The Lord of the Rings. And of course, we must remember and I guess this is as good a time as any to uh, to recognize this now. Yes, and, and Robert's offering a, a minor spoiler here in, in Twitter about Balin. It's very sad. Yes, it's very sad. Um, yes. <laughs> um, what was I saying? I was saying that that we have to remember now as we move forward that though Tolkien did revise The Hobbit for the 1962 edition, this is where we saw last time the changes to chapter five, to the, the riddle game. He did revise the rest of the book too, but he didn't revise the ring a great deal. So when we are looking back on the ring, when we are wondering about the significance of the ring, and when we are wondering about the mechanics of the ring, and I've had a lot of email talking about the power of the ring. How does the ring do what it does? How does it exert its malign influence? Does it touch luck? Is it an inverse of eucatastrophe? What is it that the ring does? Is it sentient and conscious and aware? Does it genuinely manipulate the bearer of the ring? Or does it simply draw out their worst impulses? All of these are completely valid questions, but not really within the rest of The Hobbit. Because for the rest of The Hobbit, with a few very, very minor alterations in that revised edition of The Hobbit, in the rest of this book, the ring is just Bilbo's magic ring. It's just a magical ring of invisibility. It is not the one ring that it will later be. And even the very vague and subtle hints that we get of the power of the one ring back in chapter five are all but gone at this point. Now, of course, Tolkien was, as we've said before, incredible at the art of the retcon. 
So it's entirely possible to look at instances like this and to see them as being completely compatible with the story of the ring that we'll get later. So compatible, in fact, that there's no way they could be unintentional. Of course, this is the ring exerting an influence over Bilbo. This is why he is telling the dwarves this lie. This is the influence of the ring. And certainly when we get to the Fellowship of the Ring and we look backward, when Gandalf and Frodo discuss this very moment, they will look back at the Hobbit, as we discussed last week, and say, oh, no, no, the first version of the Gollum story was the story that Bilbo told the dwarves. That wasn't true. Maybe he was under the influence of something. Could be. So we'll talk more about the Ring as we get into the Lord of the Rings. Pretty much the Ring is now off the table for the rest of the Hobbit. There are a few things that we will note, and certainly by all means, speculate, but we're not really telling the story of the ring at this point. So we conclude that sequence, that excerpt, with a formal declaration of, of identity, this, this formal act of courtesy, which I find completely heartwarming. And then we shift the entire tone. Coming through the Misty Mountains has been certainly something of a liminal experience, certainly something of a fairy tale experience. It has been dark and it has been grotesque in its way from the goblins to Gollum and beyond. But all fairy tales, fairy tale stories, excuse me, have to end. All liminal experiences have to end. Eventually you cross that threshold and you emerge on the other side as Bilbo now has. And we do something here very clever in the text to demonstrate that that is the case. This is our next excerpt right here. We must be getting on at once now we are all a little rested, he said. They will be out after us in hundreds when night comes on and already shadows are lengthening. They can smell our footsteps for hours and hours after we have passed. We must be miles on before dusk. There will be a bit of moon if it keeps fine and that is lucky. Not that they mind the moon much but it will give us a little light to steer by. Oh, yes, he said in answer to more questions from the Hobbit. You lose track of time inside goblin tunnels. Today's Thursday, and it was Monday night or Tuesday morning that we were captured. We have gone miles and miles and come right down through the heart of the mountains and are now on the other side. Quite a shortcut. But we are not to the point to which our pass would have brought us. We are too far to the north and have some awkward country ahead and we are still pretty high up. Let's get on. I will forgive Gandalf for not saying let's push on right there at the end, but hey, he's only human. Well, he's only a wizard. That's a more complicated question than it seems to be. This, though, is genuinely fascinating because this brief passage is accomplishing two things. The first is that we are reestablishing now a tone of normality. We are now back in the real world. It is dangerous. We are still being hunted by goblins, but it is Thursday. And there is, I might argue, no more mundane day of the week than Thursday. Thursday is perhaps as normal as the week gets. And because it is Thursday, we are now back in a world in which Thursdays exist. I don't think that Thursdays happen in Gollum's cave, deep beneath the Misty Mountains. I don't even necessarily think that Thursdays happen in Goblin Town. I'm not sure that Thursdays happen in Rivendell. Thursdays happen in the Shire. Thursdays happen beneath the Lonely Mountain when the dwarves lived there. Thursdays happened in Dale and will continue to happen in Lake Town. Thursdays are 
proof that we have re-entered the mundane world and we are no longer bound up in myth and in fairy tale, or at least less bound up in myth and in fairy tale than we used to be. And partly that is, of course, accounted for by the, the re-emergence into the light. We are now just back in the world. But we're also changing our tone a little bit. This adventure is over, and in a sense, the journey is now continuing. We must also note, because it is going to continue to be significant in the chapters to come, that the kidnapping of the dwarves by the goblins, as terrifying as it was, is an act of unbelievable good fortune. Not only have they moved through the Misty Mountains more rapidly than they otherwise would, not only have they overcome the dangers that they faced, rather than facing dangers that perhaps they would not have overcome, but they are now further north than they expected to be. That is significant, because we are going to find out in the chapters ahead that had they taken their original route, they would have had much more trouble crossing the Misty Mountains. Captured by the, by the goblins turns out to have been surprisingly fortuitous. Once again, Bilbo and his companions are guided by luck. It's extraordinary how many things turn to their advantage. And again, because Capture by the Goblins was such a terrible disaster, was such a, a trial to overcome, we might invoke that magical word here, eucatastrophe. It may be eucatastrophic that the dwarves and Bilbo were taken and then emerged in pretty much the best place that they could emerge in order for their journey to continue. Yes. <laughs> Victoria says, I beg to disagree. Thursdays are the days before Fridays and are therefore at least better than Wednesdays. I'm sorry. I didn't say they are the worst days. I said they are the most mundane, mundane days. I would argue that because Wednesdays are the worst days, they are more mundane than Thursdays. Thursdays are just as normal as it gets. That's my argument. Yes. Yes. Good. And of course, yes, absolutely. We're, we're, um, we're, um, evoking this idea that we're now in a place where calendars matter again. And, and ultimately, too, well, I guess we, we foreshadowed this a little bit, but there is a deadline on this quest. There is like a time lock here that we have to consider. They have to be at the Lonely Mountain by Durin's Day. They have to be outside of the keyhole before the last light of the setting sun on Durin's Day does whatever it is that it's going to do. So there is a time lock here, and lost days could be catastrophic. Once again, we find that, that luck has played to the dwarves' advantage, and will continue to do so. Good. All right. Let's, taking back Thursday, says Esmeralda Salt. Absolutely. Let's reclaim Thursday. Thursday is the new Friday. Friday is the new black. I don't know how these things work. Okay, let's uh, keep pushing ever onward. Um, good. Because at that point, we are introduced to the wargs with this passage here. All of a sudden, they heard a howl away downhill, a long, shuddering howl. It was answered by another away to the right and a good deal nearer to them, then by another not too far away to the left. It was wolves howling at the moon, wolves gathering together. There were no wolves living near Mr. Baggins' hole at home, but he knew that noise. He had had it described to him often enough in tales. On the Took side, who had been a great traveler, used to imitate it to frighten him. 
To hear it out in the forest under the moon was too much for Bilbo. Even magic rings are not much use against wolves, especially against the evil packs that lived under the shadow of the goblin-infested mountains, over the edge of the wild on the borders of the unknown. Wolves of that sort smell keener than goblins and do not need to see you. What shall we do? What shall we do? He cried. Escaping goblins to be caught by wolves, he said. And it became a proverb, though we now say, out of the frying pan into the fire, in the same sort of uncomfortable situations. We have here a moment of mythic creation here. This is another one of those tiny moments that Tolkien likes to, to pepper through his prose. This is the creation of one of these explanatory myths that we've discussed before. This goes back to the, the creation of the game of golf, for example. That's a similar version of this kind of story. Here, Bilbo says spontaneously, escaping goblins to be caught by wolves. And that becomes proverbial throughout Middle-earth. Spoilers, it doesn't become proverbial throughout Middle-earth, at least not within the frame of the books. No one ever says this again, but that's fine. It actually flows forward from this moment, and it feels to me not like Bilbo, actually, but rather like the intrusion of that more Victorian narrator that we've discussed before. This feels like that kind of, of mythic creation. But here, more importantly, we see the contrast between Bilbo's civil side and his wild side, or his civil experience and wild experience. I love that by this point, we don't need an explanation of the Tooks. One of his elder cousins on the Took side, who had been a great traveler, you don't need one of those two descriptors. Either one is fine. One of his elder cousins on the Took side used to imitate it to frighten him. Or one of his elder cousins, who had been a great traveler, used to imitate it to frighten him. Either of those things now works companionably with the other. There is a certain symmetry there, which I adore. This speaks to the depth of the world building that we're creating. And then we're getting this mythic language too about the wolves as they come over the edge of the world on the borders of the unknown. Bilbo is feeling as though he is clinging now to this precipice, the, the very fringe of civilization, because what lies beyond is dangerous. And he's right. But there is a difference here between the threat posed by the wargs, these, these wolves, and the threat posed by the goblins. And it is simply this, malice. The wargs don't care about the dwarves. They don't care about Bilbo. They don't care about Gandalf. They will attack them and they will eat them, but they will do so as a function of their nature. The goblins will seek to hurt the dwarves, will seek to act not in accordance simply with their nature, but out of vengeance and fury. That is a key distinction, and I want you to hold that in your mind as we look at the rest of this evening's reading, because ultimately that is going to become completely clear. Um, yes, Robert says, I love how Tolkien absconded with proverbs and common usage. Golf, frying pan, cow jumped over the moon. Yes, we'll, we'll certainly get to that when we get to, uh, when we get to the... Um, when we get to the Fellowship of the Ring, of course, yes. Right. Oh, and Kate, of course, points out, and I hadn't even considered this, she says Thursday's child has far to go, could back again have a more perfect time slot. I had, of course, forgotten that today was Thursday. Gandalf is apparently better at keeping track of the days than I am. Good. Um... <laughs> Yes, (laughs)
Yes, we're talking about uh, we're talking about Bilbo trying to make this this proverb happen when he gets back to Hobbiton. To which Sean replies, "Bilbo, stop trying to make proverbs happen. They're not going to happen. Good. Now I kind of want the uh, I kind of want the Mean Girls Hobbit crossover. That's that's the thing I need. Oh, good lord, with all those dwarves, that would work perfectly. Okay, if someone can do a mashup of the trailer for Mean Girls and the trailer for The Hobbit: The Unexpected Journey, that would just be the greatest thing ever." I think we, we definitely need that on the internet. Good. Okay, let's skip ahead because, of course, I am not moving as swiftly as I said I would, you guys. Who's surprised by that? Let's take a look at the next uh, excerpt here. As Bilbo and the others find themselves trapped in a glade trying to climb trees in order to escape the wargs, and poor Bilbo gets all but left behind. And Bilbo... He could not get into any tree and was scuttling about from trunk to trunk like a rabbit that has lost his hole and has a dog after it. You've left the burglar behind again, said Nori to Dory, looking down. I can't always be carrying burglars on my back, said Dory. Down tunnels and up trees. What do you think I am, a porter? He'll be eaten if we don't do something, said Thorin, for there were howls all round them now, getting nearer and nearer. Dory, he called, for Dory was lowest down in the easiest tree. Be quick and give Mr. Baggins a hand up. Dory was really a decent fellow in spite of his grumbling. Poor Bilbo could not reach his hand even when he climbed down to the bottom branch and hung his arm down as far as ever he could. So Dory actually climbed out of the tree and let Bilbo scramble up and stand on his back. Just at that moment, the wolves trotted howling into the clearing. All of a sudden, there were hundreds of eyes looking at them. Still, Dory did not let Bilbo down. He waited till he had clambered off his shoulders into the branches, and then he jumped for the branches himself, only just in time. A wolf snapped at his cloak as he swung up and nearly got him. In a minute, there was a whole pack of them yelping all round the tree and leaping up at the trunk with eyes blazing and tongues hanging out. A little beat of adventure here as Bilbo is rescued by Dory, though really rescued by the authority of Thorin, and we have to ask whether or not Thorin would have risked one of his own number, one of his companions, to rescue Bilbo on the other side of the Misty Mountains. I'm not sure that he would. I'm not sure that we would have had exactly this interaction. And I'm certainly not sure that Thorin would have referred to Bilbo as Mr. Baggins, which is a very proper and formal mode of address, the kind of mode of address to which Thorin, as the heir apparent to the Lost Kingdom of Erebor, would, would be mindful of. He would be he would be considerate of that. He would be cognizant of that. This is actually a fairly courteous version of Thorin, particularly compared to some of the versions that we've seen previously, and it works out rather well. To what degree is Bilbo's acceptance within this community based on the turning points that he has faced beneath the Misty Mountains? Well, we'll continue to track this as we move ahead. This is by no means the, the greatest moment in Bilbo's adventuring career. Yes. Yes, a lot of calling out here in the uh, a lot of calling out here in the YouTube chat about poor Dory. Yes, he's uh... <laughs> yes, maybe you are a porter. In fact, good. And Jordan says, "I love that grounding in reality." Dory asking if he's something like asking if he's something like a porter. That's astounding. Yes, and AMJFAE Amjfe. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Says, "Does this mean Bilbo is in now?" Well, it means that Bilbo is more in now. I might say, but. Perhaps not completely. We will be surprised, particularly if this is your first time through The Hobbit, we will be surprised just how in Bilbo gets before we're done. 
And now I'm realizing that I have left this slide up for far too long. But it is a good time to move on to the next slide where we see Bilbo. Oh, no, this is moving ahead to the meeting of the wargs, in fact. Let's, uh, yes, you have this. This is wonderful. Good. Yes, Robert says in uh, on Twitter here, in the emergency, Thorin's address of Mr. Baggins is not disrespectful. Quite the opposite from the letter left on the mantle. I couldn't agree more. That's beautifully expressed, Robert. You're absolutely right. It is it is absolutely respectful, which is wonderful. Yes, good. Yes. Excellent. So now we have, now we're barreling toward eucatastrophe is where we are now. Now we're moving urgently toward the realization of this, this moment of, of intercessory grace. This, this is the passage as we move into it. This glade in the Ring of Trees was evidently a meeting place of the wolves. More and more kept coming in. They left guards at the foot of the tree in which Dory and Bilbo were, and then went snuffling about till they had smelt out every tree that had anyone in it. These were guarded, too. While all the rest, hundreds and hundreds it seemed, went and sat in a great circle in the glade. And in the middle of that circle was a great grey wolf. He spoke to them in the dreadful language of the wargs. Gandalf understood it. Bilbo did not, but it sounded terrible to him, as if all their talk was about cruel and wicked things, as it was. Every now and then, all the wargs in the circle would answer their grey chief altogether, and their dreadful clamour almost made the hobbit fall out of his pine tree. So here we see, first of all, a moment of extraordinary fortune. Good fortune, bad fortune, that remains to be seen, but the enormous the enormous coincidence that having emerged apparently at random from the flank of the Misty Mountains, having traveled in an unpredictable direction, having sought refuge, the Dwarven Company should find themselves in a glade that is the meeting place of these wargs. Not just a glade that is the meeting place, but during a meeting. This is the one night in who knows how long where the wargs are convening. But what's more important here for me is our perspective on warg culture, because we see things here that are recognizable. They talk, they communicate. Hundreds of them gather around their chieftain, effectively, and listen to him talk. We are going to discover in the pages to come that this is a very special night, that the wargs and the goblins are going to work together, that they are going to raid the, the cities of the menfolk, the farms and the villages of the menfolk nearby, that this is going to be an unusual, if not completely unprecedented, assault on the human cultures in this area. This is one night out of 10,000, 100,000, 1,000,000, who can say? This is a remarkable opportunity, and here Gandalf and the dwarves, of course, just stumble into it. Not only do they stumble into that, but there is some more coincidence layered on top of this, thanks to the eagles. Eagles are not kindly birds. Some are cowardly and cruel, but the ancient race of the northern mountains were the greatest of all birds. They were proud and strong and noble-hearted. They did not love goblins or fear them. When they took any notice of them at all, which was seldom, for they did not eat such creatures, they swooped on them and drove them shrieking back into their caves and stopped whatever wickedness they were doing. The goblins hated the eagles and feared them, but could not reach their lofty seats or drive them from the mountains. 
Tonight, the Lord of the Eagles was filled with curiosity to know what was afoot. So he summoned many other eagles to him, and they flew away from the mountains, and slowly circling ever round and round, they came down, 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 toward the ring of the wolves and the meeting place of the goblins. In the YouTube chat here, Elizabeth Stevens asks, Sarah wants to know if a warg is bigger than a direwolf. Uh, they are the same thing. That's basically how that works. Yes, they're, they're very large. They are, uh, I believe that warg is an Anglo-Saxon word for wolf, which is also where direwolves come from. So yes, they are functionally the same thing. Good. Um, and, and Rebel Captain Cat B on Twitter says, wargs are to wolves as eagles, capital E, are to eagles, lowercase e, Yes, certainly, in part. I think that's that's a great observation there. Because what we're seeing here is an alternate culture. Again, we just had our glimpse of the wargs gathered in the meeting place, looking to their chieftain, snarling in their guttural language that sounds as though it is only suited to wicked and evil things, as it is, as the narrator informs us. But now we pivot away from that. We transition away from that to the eagles, another culture which exists completely independently in the wild. And the eagles, as is made clear through this passage, are, capital W, wild. This is not a friendly or a entirely hospitable culture. They have their own identity. They have their own community. They have their own agenda. They are good, we're told. Here, they were proud and strong and noble-hearted. They did not love goblins or fear them. Great, sounds like we can be buddies. Everyone who is team anti-goblin, raise your hand. I'm sorry, I meant wing. But it's not that simple. Because when, they, when the eagles took any notice of the goblins at all, which was seldom, for they did not each eat such creatures, excuse me, they swooped on them and drove them shrieking back into their caves and stopped whatever wickedness they were doing. But that's all. There is no war between the eagles and the goblins. And in part, we might argue that that is because war is a civil construct. That is not to say that war is civil, and I'm steering away from old puns about civil wars, but that is to say that war is a function of civilization, that the wild has no war because we have no lines of demarcation, because we have no sense of, of the status quo. There is only the now. So eagles are strong and powerful, and I think we would consider them, capital G, good, but that doesn't mean that they are allied with all the other forces that are capital G, good. Similarly, we look at the wargs and we see wicked creatures. Everything about their description leads us to believe that they are wicked. But that also is not so simple because they, they like the eagles, are acting in accordance with their nature. They are being what they are. Goblins can pervert their natures. Goblins can fall. But the wild can't really fall. It doesn't matter if the eagles are good and the wargs are bad. They are each themselves. They can be dealt with or overcome or fought or allied with as circumstance ebbs and circumstance flows. But we can't readily condemn the wargs, for example. We can't say, you are evil, you wolf, because 
Instead, it seems that Tolkien is saying, we should be saying, you are a wolf, you wolf. That expression of quintessence is, is key in part, I think, to our understanding of what the wild is. This is an environment that does not play by the rules of civilization because, hey, it is not civilized. Let's look then at what civilization looks like. Because by this point, the goblins have shown up and the goblins are taunting the dwarves. Gandalf has taken magical fire and rained it down upon the goblins, trying to drive them away or trying to drive away the wargs, I should say. And though the wargs are afraid of the fire, as they should be, they are just wolves after all, they are animals. The goblins are taking a macabre and sinister delight in this destruction and are now putting that fire to ill use by burning the trees. Let's take a look at their first of two songs here. Fifteen birds and five fir trees, their feathers were fanned in a fiery breeze. But funny little birds, they had no wings. Oh, what shall we do with the funny little things? Roast them alive or stew them in a pot? Fry them, boil them, and eat them hot? This reminds us, of course, of the down down to goblin town song though not as powerfully as the next goblin song will which occurs later on the same page so you know what let's take a look at both of those immediately um yes here we go if you look back to down down to goblin town you will recognize not just the beat of this not just the rhythm of this not just the aesthetic and the sound of this but also the structure of this poem here we begin very simply and expand out this is a contracted version of the Goblin Town song, but still it obeys many of the same rules. Burn, burn, tree and fern, shrivel and scorch, a sizzling torch to light the night for our delight, yahay! Bake and toast them, fry and roast them till beards blaze and eyes glaze, till hair smells and skins crack, fats melt and bones black, in cinders lie beneath the sky, so dwarves shall die and light the night for our delight. Yahay, yahari hey, yahoy. Here again, we get this sense that the goblins are, in the first instance, recapitulating their current experience. They're singing about the fires that they just lit. They're singing about the burning of the pine trees and the roasting of the dwarves within them. And then they're moving forward. Bake and toast them, fry and roast them till beards blaze and eyes glaze. Just as we saw back in the capture scene in the Misty Mountains, the goblins are present in their song, but also darker in their song. They are pushing their own experience and action further forward in order to, well, in order to frighten, in order to celebrate, in order to find this dark and savage joy in destruction, in murder, in mutilation. It is corrupt. It is the opposite in a sense, of what we mean when we say civilization. We generally think of civilization as an ordered and positive thing, though perhaps less in this benighted modern era than we have in times past. But the goblins are only capable of this corruption, of this savagery, of this malice, because they too are on the borders of civilization. Because they too have a sense of their own culture that the wargs and the eagles lack. This is 
what happens when civilizations fall. This is what happens when industrialization leads us to dehumanize. And of course, we have to remember, as was discussed back in the Down Down to Goblin Town song, goblins keep slaves. That is the ultimate expression of dehumanization, perhaps. You know, the, the or I guess we get very tangled up when we're talking about fantasy worlds, I suppose. When I say dehumanization, I suppose I mean the 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 uh, the rendering insignificant of personhood regardless of the actual race of that person. So here we see the wild in conflict with the wild, but also civilization in conflict with civilization. Those two things occupy the same space here, but one is clearly darker. It is very difficult to be judgmental about the wargs when we can look on the goblins and particularly on that second song and, and find disquieting things within them. Good. Yes, yes. Excellent. Okay. Uh, let me check the YouTube chat here. Um, why is it, says Gordon, that the goblins never head west? Why is it the goblins have never set foot in the Shire, as far as we know, in the text? Well, for a number of reasons. Firstly, the Shire itself, and again, this is looking ahead to the Lord of the Rings, not so much in The Hobbit, but the Shire is protected. The rangers do guard the Shire in part. So there are forces within the West that actively protect the Shire and actively curtail the presence of goblins. For me, the, the most obvious answer is Rivendell, that the presence of the elves and their, the way in which elves spread civilization and order through the world, I think would dissuade any goblin raids from coming down, though I'm sure that goblin raids have come down from time to time in the dim and distant past. Yes. Yes. Good. Um, oh, Sam just says, yes, depersonification. De yes, good. Um, <laughs> yes, Haley says, the goblins finding joy and destruction, that is considered corruption. Do the wargs find joy and destruction as well, the joy of following their nature? But it's not corruption since they are wild. I would argue that the wargs do not find joy in destruction, they will kill and consume because that is their nature. But the rampant destruction of something, the destruction of something simply to destroy it, the destruction of something in particular to defile it, that is not something which it seems to me the wargs would be interested in doing. That is not within their nature. While the goblins absolutely would. Yeah, excellent. And we're talking about pirates. <laughs> because pirates follow me all around the internet. Good. Oh, because Garrett says there's some pirate in this song. Yes. There is a little bit, actually. Yes, there is a certain... Uh, yes, I think it might be the Yahe in this particular version. That, that has a certain piratical quality to it, doesn't it? Yes. Good. Oh, and Gene says on Twitter, I've lived through two major forest fires. The depiction of the warg setting the very dry forest aflame really hits me. I can only imagine. It is a particularly visceral and evocative passage. It, it is one of those things that even the first time that I read The Hobbit really stood out to me. I couldn't really envision, certainly not in a lingering way, Goblin Town. I still have trouble, honestly, picturing Goblin Town. I get Gollum's Cave. That works perfectly. I'm still not sure what, what I'm supposed to have in my mind for a Goblin Town, but certainly the vision of the dwarves clinging to these pine trees. And of course, growing up as I did in the northeast of Scotland, pine trees are everywhere. I had walked in pine forests every day of my life, so I knew exactly how they get in the very height of summer where everything is dry and you feel as though 
a spark. You feel as though clapping your hands might be enough to ignite the forest. Certainly, that is true here. Yeah. Okay, let's keep pushing on because we have just a little more ground to cover because Bilbo is almost left behind. Poor little Bilbo was very nearly left behind again. He just managed to catch hold of Dory's legs as Dory was borne off last of all and up they went together above the tumult and the burning, Bilbo swinging in the air with his arms nearly breaking. Now far below the goblins and the wolves were scattering far and wide in the woods. A few eagles were still circling and sweeping above the battleground. The flames about the trees sprang suddenly up above the highest branches. They went up in crackling fire. There was a sudden flurry of sparks and smoke. Bilbo had escaped only just in time. Soon, the light of the burning was faint below, a red twinkle on the black floor, and they were, they were high up in the sky, rising all the time in strong, sweeping circles. Bilbo never forgot that flight, clinging onto Dory's ankles. He moaned, my arms, my arms, but Dory groaned, my poor legs, my poor legs. There again, we get one of these classic Hobbit transitions, one of those classic Hobbit hard cuts where we get to the end of an action sequence. We are suddenly left with all of this emotion, with all of this catharsis, with all of this adrenaline, and we transition into a comedic moment. We transition into something that is certainly important, certainly possessive of thematic depth, but something which is ultimately rather silly. This is the brass buttons to the end of the last chapter. This is the moment where suddenly we escape and are free and we transition that tone into something more companionable, certainly something more soothing to the younger audience. So the eagles. We really must talk about the eucatastrophe of the eagles. Not only do the dwarves endure capture by the goblins? Not only do they basically fight their way free, not only do they escape into the wild with Gandalf, being harried by the goblins because they murdered the great goblin, not only do they find their way to this singular glade where this one night there happens to be a meeting of wargs and goblins who are planning the very worst kind of mischief. Not only do they take to the trees, not only are those trees lit on fire, but they are suddenly rescued. The eagles are coming. <laughs> we suddenly get this moment of utter, blinding, arch good fortune. And if we are by this point primed to read this book as we would any other, we might find this simplistic. We might be unmoved and unconvinced by the arrival of the eagles and the way that they bear the dwarves aloft really taking them out of the danger that they had endured and faced up until that point without any consequence whatsoever. The dwarves are simply buoyed along by good fortune at this point. But we're not, I think, keyed to understand this event as simple good fortune. This isn't simple luck, and it certainly isn't narrative contrivance designed to escape an intractable plot whole. No, no. What we're doing here is really demonstrating the true power and majesty of eucatastrophe. And it's all the more important because civilization has brought the dwarves here. Their desire to go and reclaim their home, which is a civil idea, and certainly to reclaim their treasure, which God knows is a civil idea, 
That has led them to this point. They have come into conflict with the other civilization within the Misty Mountains, the goblins. And this is not, of course, the first time that dwarves and goblins have fought. Theirs is an enmity that goes back millennia at this point. There have been great goblin-dwarf wars fought, won and lost on both sides. Happens again. This clash of civilizations happens again. But they are rescued not by civilization but by the wild. They are rescued by the intercession of the eagles, who are themselves simply in the right place at the right time. There is no great plan. And we have to be very careful about this because the eagles explicitly do not patrol the Misty Mountains looking for trouble that they can fix. They don't watch the goblins to make sure that they're not getting up to anything too evil or too wicked. They generally pay them no heed at all. When they come into conflict, they will fight the goblins because the evil, the eagles, excuse me, are good and the goblins are bad. And that's how those lines of conflict are drawn. The eagles are noble hearted and the goblins are not. But the eagles are not, this is not the police force of the eastern side of, of the Misty Mountains. This is not NCIS East, I guess, NCIS of the wild. This is something far more primal, far more elemental, far more true than that. So we get this beautiful intercession of grace, of course, that is what eucatastrophe means is the intercession of grace, but we get the intercession not just of grace, but of the wild itself. The eagles save the dwarves because they are the eagles, just as the wargs attack the dwarves because they are the wargs. In part, being wild means being in complete possession of your identity, but also being ruled by that identity. There is no internal conflict between who you are and what you do. Being wild means that that is a single unified thing. And a lot of this, by the way, is preparatory because we're going to talk next week about the ultimate example of that, I think. We're going to talk next week about Bjorn, who is the, the apotheosis, I think, of, of the wild in action as it were. And because he is more similar to us, we get an even better perspective on that. But everything that we're going to say about Bjorn next week is true of both the eagles on the one hand and the wargs on the other. So Tolkien throughout this entire chapter is making an eloquent case about the nature of the wild, that it isn't just savage, it isn't just red in tooth and claw, but it is in a sense, is in a sense itself in all of its infinite variety. And that civilization is what happens when we stop being ourselves, when we leave behind our true natures and take up artifice and society. And I think he would see those two things as being somewhat benevolently commingled, somewhat benevolently entangled, but present nonetheless. So the intercession of the eagles, as I say, is perhaps the greatest moment of eucatastrophe that we will see, certainly in The Hobbit, well, I'm not sure that I agree with that. I think that the intercession of the eagles is generally regarded as the greatest moment of eucatastrophe that we will see in The Hobbit. I don't think that's true. I think there's a greater moment coming right at the end of the book. We'll talk about that when we get there. Actually, right at the transition into the third act. Yes. Good. Robert says the eagles are not just grace, but noble grace, powerful, detached, and asympathetic to the company. Yes, this is vital. The eagles do not save the dwarves because the dwarves. The eagles save the dwarves because the eagles. That is what motivates them to take action. Good. Special eagles unit. Special eagles unit, you guys, is where the joke was. I, I struggled to find it. I missed it. I didn't get there. 
I have to go back now. Yes, Kate says law and order SEU special equals unit. Done. Kate, you win that joke. Excellent job. <laughs> good. Good, good. All right. Let's um Actually, I'm doing pretty good for time. I think we're going to wrap up right on time tonight for perhaps the first time ever. Let's take a look at this last excerpt here as we as we take Bilbo and the dwarves now into the heart of the wild, because for all the adversity that they have faced, the side of a mountain, the, the pine trees themselves, these are fairly familiar spaces. They have dealt with these things before. And of course, we talked about that to mundanity in the following the emergence from the Misty Mountains. Now that we've left behind the wonder and peril and, and dark, bitter majesty of Goblin Town and certainly of Gollum's Cave too, now we've reset to mundanity. Now we're just on a mountainside. It's Thursday. Everything's good. Well, now we're beginning to move past that. And we're not doing it in the same way. The flight of the eagles is not a transition in the same way that the passage into the Misty Mountains is a transition because our dwarves and Bilbo are passive here. They are literally carried aloft. They are literally moved onward to the next thing. And that, that feels like a different kind of transition, but it is a transition nonetheless because we arrive at the Eerie. Let's share this slide. Soon another eagle flew up. The Lord of the Eagles bids you to bring your prisoners to the great shelf, he cried and was off again. The other seized Dory and his claws and flew away with him into the night, leaving Bilbo all alone. He had just strength to wonder what the messenger had meant by prisoners and to begin to think of being torn up for supper like a rabbit when his own turn came. The eagle came back, seized him in his talons by the back of his coat and swooped off. This time he flew only a short way. Very soon Bilbo was laid down, trembling with fear on a wide shelf of rock on the mountainside. There was no path down on excuse me, there was no path down onto it save by flying and no path down off it except by jumping over a precipice. There he found all the others sitting with their backs to the mountain wall. The Lord of the Eagles also was there and was speaking to Gandalf. It seemed that Bilbo was not going to be eaten after all. The wizard and the eagle lord appeared to know one another slightly and even to be on friendly terms. As a matter of fact, Gandalf, who had often been in the mountains, had once rendered a service to the eagles and healed their lord from an arrow wound. So you see, prisoners had meant prisoners rescued from the goblins only, and not captives of the eagles. As Bilbo listened to the talk of Gandalf, he realized that at last they were going to escape really and truly from the dreadful mountains. He was discussing plans with the great eagle for carrying the dwarves and himself and Bilbo far away, and settling them down well on their journey across the plains below. So here we have the balance, if you like, to the intrusion of grace, the balance to eucatastrophe. Here we get the vaguest hint that eucatastrophe does have roots. And we talked about this before. We talked about this with regard to the finding of the swords, and we talked about this with regard to the finding of the moon letters. And now we have, in a sense, the realization of a kindness done by Gandalf. Now, Gandalf does not extend capital G grace because Gandalf is, well, okay, that's a little more complicated, but to a lesser extent, to a greater or lesser extent, Gandalf is, is almost mortal. He is not God, effectively. So he cannot extend true grace, but he can extend kindness. He can be 
a positive force in the world as he was with the Lord of the Eagles. And that now, in part, has, if you'll forgive the pun, come home to roost. Yeah. This is powerful stuff. This is potent stuff. And it is, I think, completely essential to understanding Tolkien's worldview, to understanding the foundations that are being laid for the Lord of the Rings. Because when we move into the Lord of the Rings, we're going to continue to meet with moments of eucatastrophe. And I apologize for anyone who is currently drunk on the floor because of the eucatastrophe drinking game that is happening in a YouTube chat. You guys, I told you before we started, it's pretty unwise. Um, we're going to look at incidents of eucatastrophe, and many of them are going to be more subtle than this, and are going to arise more naturally from the complexity of the world. These are these are emergent properties of complex systems in part, but our understanding here needs to be acute. We must not misunderstand what eucatastrophe is. We must not attribute this simply to fortune or, or to payment. It isn't the case that the eagles interceded because Gandalf once helped the Lord of the Eagles. It's not simply transactive. That would demean the entire experience. That would make mundane the entire experience. No, this is a testament to a universe that functions according to fundamental kindness, fundamental charity, fundamental mercy, and fundamental grace. And I want to think about that as we move forward here from the precipice of the, of the Eagle's Eyrie into the wild proper. Certainly, we're going to talk about the civil and the savage from a very different perspective next week, as I said, when we meet Bayorn, who is, who is, I think, a lot of people's favorite character. I think a lot of people are really crazy uh, for, for the next chapter, for, for uh, let me, in fact, put up the slide here so that we can, let me, in fact, get to the slide and then put the slide up so that we can plan our event next week. Next week, The Hobbit 7 Queer Lodgings. That's 9 p.m. Eastern next Thursday, February 23rd, 2017. We will talk about chapter seven in its entirety. It is a little longer. It is a little more complex and there is a lot more substance. So we're going to be able to put some of this preparatory material on the subject of the civil and the wild to good use next week as we move in. So I'm really hoping that, uh, that you guys enjoy that reading. Let's see here. Jackie says, mercy is the cornerstone of this story, it seems. That is a very interesting perspective, and I think you may well be right. Yes. Mercy in perhaps the broadest sense, yes. Robert says, eucatastrophe is not transactional, ever. Oh, and Lauren says, uh, I'm sorry, I just lost that because the Twitter chat moved. Uh, oh, I, you're right. Yes. Coral says, it says queers. It does say queers there on the slide. It shouldn't say queers. It should say queer. Queer lodgings next week here on Back Again. Yes. <laughs> Oops. This is what happens when I prepare the last slide right before I start because I've forgotten to prepare the last slide. Yes. Yes. Um, good. And a lot of talk of, of grace and of heroism. Yes, good. Oh, Lorna asks, how did Bilbo understand that he was being called a prisoner? Was the eagle speaking English? Hey, yes. Yes, the eagles were speaking English. Um, this is one of the interesting breaking points between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. It is now 9.30. I'm going to do two minutes on this because now I should be stopping. And everyone is going to tease me for running long. I just want to make it clear. I'm only running long because I was asked a really interesting question. 
This is one of the major breaking points between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. This is one of the ways in which The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings function very differently as texts. There are talking animals all over the place in The Hobbit. There are no talking animals in The Lord of the Rings. One exception, there are no talking animals in The Lord of the Rings. There is a moment in The Lord of the Rings when we are given, and, and maybe what is the weirdest moment in The Lord of the Rings, we are given a passing sense of the party of hobbits from the POV, from the internal monologue of a passing fox. The fox thinks it is odd to see hobbits, and he kind of verbalizes that. But to the best of my recollection, there are no talking animals in The Lord of the Rings. In The Hobbit, we get talking animals left and right, and up to and including a talking purse, I guess. Everything can talk in The Hobbit. And that is part, I think, of the fairy tale aesthetic of The Hobbit. It's only right that these creatures should be able to talk for the same reason as creatures talk in Disney movies. We personify, and by personification, we imbue them with the ability to express themselves in human terms, in English terms, effectively. The wargs, not so much, because the wargs are wicked, and we want to... <laughs> this hadn't occurred to me until just now, but of course, of course, the wargs who are wicked do not speak English, but the eagles who are noble-hearted do. This is what happens when a scholar of linguistics writes a fantasy story. I think that Tolkien would absolutely see English as being something that was in the capability of, of the forces of good in the world. So, yes, that is to say that, yes, animals do speak, and we have not seen our last talking animal yet in The Hobbit. Good. Sean McLaughlin says, I still can't deal with the talking purse, you guys. No, it's fine. <laughs> Robert Hickok says Disney would hate Tolkien. Oh, because Jordan says Tolkien hates Disney. You know, I think of it kind of as a slap-slap-kiss kind of situation. You know, they fight, they bicker, they stay up one night. Maybe they start making out. I'm not saying anything. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap this up. Um, good. <laughs> I completely regret that thing that I just said. <laughs> okay, let's finish this off. Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you this week. It is an odd chapter. I know it has been a little... Uh, a little less meaty. There's a little less substance in this chapter than we usually look for. But next time, we're going to have a lot of great discussions about the very specific intersection of the civil and the savage of the West and the wild. I hope you will be able to join me for that next time. If you have a moment tonight, this evening, head on over to patreon.com slash storymonk, pledge a dollar a month, whatever you can afford, and then vote in the spring seminar poll I can't wait to talk about one of these books. I put together the shortlist. It is only books about which I have, hopefully, fun and interesting things to say. These are only books which are substantial enough to justify the investment of time and energy into their analysis. So I hope that you will find something there that you like. Right now, I think American Gods is doing rather well. That is going to be a substantial discussion, let me tell you. But I hope that you'll join me again for that and join me again next week for more there and back again as we move into Chapter 7 queer lodgings guys thanks so much for listening i'll talk to you all soon until then 